Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. In this episode, I'm speaking with Brian Alfry. Brian's a law professor and a filmmaker, but that doesn't really capture what it is that he does. He describes his work as conceptual art in the medium of legal scholarship. Others have described him as a dataist professor of law. In any event, he's always interesting, thought-provoking, and challenging. This is his story. All right, Brian Alfry, welcome. How are you? Good. How are you, Bob? It's nice to talk to you. Good. I'm I'm doing well. Thanks for thanks for coming on. I've been looking forward to this. I'm I'm going to quote somebody else talking about you. So this is Professor Bruce Boyden, who described you as quote America's foremost dataist professor of law. So now. <laughs> I might quibble with some of that. Like, I'm not really sure who your competition is. So I'm not sure like why you're the foremost. And I'm not really sure whether data is the appropriate school or maybe it's Fluxus or something. What do you think you've done to deserve that appellation? <laughs> well, I was very pleased when when Bruce coined that particular phrase. I've known him for a long, a long time. He's a real nice guy. I, I mean, I think he was reacting to the fact that... I've taken a somewhat idiosyncratic approach to thinking about what legal scholarship is, what can be legal scholarship and what you can do with it. And and really, I I mean, I'll be honest, he actually said that pretty early uh, in that development when I started publishing articles that I think struck people as being unusual, but not totally beyond the pale. And uh, and since then, I think I've I've made an effort to kind of take that another step, another step further. Um, the way I've really kind of characterized it for myself is thinking about how to turn legal scholarship into a subset of an artistic practice, right? So in general, legal scholars, law professors, you know, when we engage in legal scholarship, we tend not to think of what we're doing as engaging with and participating in a literary, a form of literary production, right? It's like we have a format that we think of as being the law review article format. We stick to the format and it's sort of like a a vehicle for conveying ideas. And what struck me, reading work by a bunch of uh, scholars I found interesting who were kind of playing with that form. People like uh, Ixta Maya Murray and uh, Pierre Schlag, right? Who in their articles were kind of playing with the form of the law review article in order to think about what it's doing, how it's doing it, and how the form, how the literary form is shaping the content that's being expressed or maybe even the content that, that can be expressed in that particular literary form. And I just figured, well, I would kind of try to think about that even more broadly and to ask, you know, how do you choose a form that sort of informs, as it were, whatever a particular project is intended to accomplish? So to to kind of put the goals of the project first or the concept first, and then to ask, what it should look like in order to accomplish that goal in a kind of productive or effective way. I think one piece that I read was, that well, I, I mentioned both Professor Murray and uh, Professor Schlag, both of whom wrote pieces that kind of got me thinking in that way. So for example, uh, Ixta Maya Murray, she wrote this article I won't get the entire title right because it's long, but it was like, um, it was a letter of recommendation to written to Judge Kaczynski that I guess I'm not going to send now, right? So it was a law review article in the form of a recommendation letter, but with internal commentary and digressions that reflected on sort of the expectations of such a letter, what the milieu is in which it's written, and how kind of new knowledge about Judge Kaczynski's bad behavior informed her reaction to the concept of writing this letter in the first place. And it was fun to actually talk with, I, I assigned this to my seminar students, and we talked about it in class this week. And I thought it was really kind of insightful of one of them to point out that it was like, you know, what she did 
could have been written as a traditional law review article, but I don't think would have been as effective or as compelling. And thinking about the format, right, or the, the format she chose and how she used it made it a much more rhetorically effective piece because rather than being a set of propositions kind of like dryly building up to a conclusion, kind of proving by overwhelming evidence, you know, that this is the appropriate way to think about something. She sort of treated it as a story or as a narrative about her own experience of producing this, you know, or rather reflecting on what she was being asked to do as a person. And it just, it just makes it, you know, a much richer and more emotionally and intellectually compelling piece. Likewise, um, Pierre Schlag has one of my favorite pieces. It's an, it's an article called the Law Review article, and it's kind of a meta Law Review article that describes what you do when producing your typical Law Review article, right? And what I really liked about that more than anything is that it underscores the extent to which what we're doing when we produce legal scholarship is very much working in a generic format. And the problem is that I think a lot of people have a hard time seeing it as a literary form at all, that there's a kind of false transparency to the literary form of the law review article that I think makes it difficult for people to use that form in a productive, compelling way. And so sort of my project was to ask myself, okay, you know, what can you do with law, right? What can you do with legal scholarship? What kind of effects can you produce with it? It's like, uh, there was like uh, something I subtitled the other day, or rather I created an NFT of an article that was a work of conceptual. Anyway, the idea was like how to do things with legal scholarship, right? Like, there's lots of different options, but we only choose a few of them. But really, to my mind, a law review article is what a law review article does. And if you call it a law review article and you circulate it within a particular discursive community with a sort of superstructure that helps people at least perceive what you're doing as an intervention in legal scholarship, albeit perhaps an unusual one, then that makes it a de facto legal scholarship. The question is, you know, in what way and how is it accomplishing that goal? So what I like to kind of characterize it as is um, conceptual art in the medium of legal scholarship, right? So to think of legal scholarship as not merely a vehicle for presenting arguments in a way that will be rhetorically compelling, but as the legal scholarship as the sort of, the sort of substance of the art form itself and the, the vessel in which the artistic practice or the artistic work that kind of animates the project is foregrounded and the form is there to serve it rather than the other way around. Amazing. There's lots to unpack there and I'm looking forward to, to trying to pull apart those threads. So, but I want to, I want to pick up on something you said there about different media, a lot of your work. And I don't know if this was exclusively sort of before you, you became a lawyer or if it continues, but a lot of your work has historically been in film. So why was film sort of a compelling medium to you? Is it still a compelling medium to you? And, and are, there, are there sort of commonalities between your, your sort of practice in film and what you're doing in legal scholarship as a medium of artistic expression? Yeah, wow. So that, that's, that's an interesting question. I'll, I'll, I, I kind of feel like I have to answer it with a story, right? So I got interested in movies when I was uh, a teenager when I was in high school. And uh, a good friend of mine, Dan Martinico, who's now actually a pretty successful, moderately successful and very interesting director in his own right. He came back from a program called uh, California State Summer School for, for the Arts, where he had over the summer taken uh, classes with a range of different Bay Area artists, including film and video artists. And he came back with these um, videos that he made while he was there. And I was, as a kid, I was like, oh my God, I didn't, I just, I didn't know you were allowed to do that, right? Because I had a frame of reference for what a movie looked like or what a, what a video did. And these didn't 
work in the same language, the same visual language. And it was really kind of mind blowing to me. But, you know, this was the, you know, this was the late 80s. You know, this was obviously pre-internet, but it was also like pre-access to a lot of culture, especially in, you know, a relatively small town like Santa Rosa that didn't have like a really robust kind of contemporary art scene, to put it mildly. There just wasn't really access to um, even the kind of range of books you might have wanted, let alone access to, you know, motion kind of motion picture art of any kind. Right. So like, I, you know, as a kid, I remember going out to these bookstores and I would buy like, you know, Sergei Eisenstein's film form and film sense. In particular, I remember buying those and like reading through the books and being like, oh, yeah, I'm totally jazzed by this. But I had no way of actually seeing the movies that Sergei Eisenstein had made and was describing in these books. I was just reading about them being like, oh, yeah, I get it. I can do that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> right? so I had this vision in my head of what Sergei Eisenstein was doing in his movies that was totally imaginary because I had to like make it up from his description of it. You know, we had like, you know, we had these old like kind of crummy video cameras that we would try to, I would try to use to make movies with and like, there were like these kind of like, what is it, you know, just trying to think about how to express things visually in ways that felt kind of new and natural, like, you know, like learning by doing, as it were, you know, and then, you know, I got to, I got to college, and immediately, by the time I got there, I was already like, okay, this is what I want to be doing with myself, I love this more than anything else, and that was where I really experienced, like, I was able to, like, actually see film art for the first time, on one level, it was like, oh, wow, I had no idea that that's what that actually look like and what people were doing like that is not what I pictured <laughs> in a good way you know but like wow okay better than I thought you know but also like I knew that this was something I was really excited about and you know so I did like a kind of a film undergrad like a film history undergrad degree but you know Berkeley I was very eclectic so it meant taking classes in lots of different departments um and actually mostly not art departments mostly like um social sciences mostly social science, a little bit of humanities stuff as well, but it was a real kind of eclectic program, you know, interning, working at different film art organizations and starting, you know, getting interested in making my own films at that point in time. And then when I graduated from, from Berkeley, it was like, I was either going to do, do a PhD in film studies or I was going to go to art school, one or the other. And I got the art school acceptance first. So I went to art school to do an, <laughs> to do an MFA, right? And, you know, while I was there, I really kind of poured all my energy into making films. And, you know, when I was like that last generation of art students who was there when, you know, working in motion picture film was, was still, still realistic. You know, so, I mean, like there was video equipment and whatnot. People were starting to do digital video, but this is the mid nineties. You know, I was working with, you know, eight millimeter, 16 millimeter on flatbeds with splicers and viewers and projectors and, and the whole bit and, you know, made a bunch of movies. Um, and, you know, in an art school, you're getting a lot of different influences. So I was taking classes with a lot of kind of new media artists, conceptual artists, you name it, um, getting interested in movements like Fluxus and so on. Uh, and, and so forth. And all of that really informed the way that I was thinking about the artistic practice that I was engaged in, kind of thinking about working visually in conceptual ways, right? So in a way, I mean, it's not so different from the approach to legal scholarship in the sense that the idea was to think about motion pictures, not as a transparent medium for storytelling, but as an aesthetic medium that informed intrinsically what it was you were trying to convey with the expression in the first place. Right. So I think, you know, there, there's there's still kind of a broad tendency to sort of feel like, oh, you know, movies are something that, you know, it's sort of like uh, telling a story, like writing a book or something where, you know, people care about the plot and the story and what happens with the characters and so on and so forth. And that's nothing wrong with that. That's totally fine. Right. But I also think it makes it easy to lose track of the experience of watching something or the experience of reading something and thinking about the medium in which you're expressing as being not just as important, but actually integrally critical to the expression 
that that you're trying to make. So I mean, I would say in that respect, sort of like my sort of experience working as a filmmaker, writing about you know art, motion picture films, programming and showing tons and tons of motion picture films, you know, very much sort of influenced the way I thought about what I was doing and why I was doing it. Now, of course, you know, I went to law school and sort of learned more about how to let, you know, you, if you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be a law professor, you've got to learn how everyone else does it before you can sort of change the rules. Um, so I did my best. Um, you know, I mean, in retrospect, I'm not sure I was all that good at being a traditional uh, lawyer or legal scholar. Um, I like to, I liked at the time I wanted to believe that, that I was, <laughs> when I look back at this stuff, I'm like, oh, I don't know, that's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, like the first law review article I published was written in the style of a hard-boiled detective novel, right? Which struck me as obvious, right? Because that's the story I wanted to talk about. So why wouldn't I, you know, work that in learning later that maybe that was an unusual choice, you know, but it stuck out, people read it, they liked it, you know, it sort of resonated with people, so whatever. And then I just kind of figured like the great thing about legal scholarship, ironically, is that because, because we don't have the same kind of disciplinary superstructure and rules that people have in other academic disciplines, you can pretty much get away with anything you want to. Ironically, most law professors are super conservative. And so they don't, they don't even think about it. And it doesn't even occur to them that they would do something unusual, but there's nothing stopping you, right? And in fact, there's, you know, basically carte blanche to do whatever you want. So when I started writing legal scholarship, I was like, I just wrote about whatever I was interested in and sort of just went off in whatever direction made sense at, at the time and gradually found myself kind of trending back in this direction of realizing that there's a lot of room to like think creatively about legal scholarship as, as a literary genre, as an artistic genre and kind of seeing a few people doing that over time. And, and honestly, like seeing how much people like that work, right? I mean, you know, it's so unusual and yet it's so resonant when people do it. And you think about the sort of the best known, the best remembered articles, like something like Splunky and Explorers, right? Something like, you know, the common law origins of the infield fly rule. One of my favorites, you know, the, the restatement of love, right? I mean, these are really memorable law review articles. They're memorable precisely because they break the rules for a reason, right? And so it hit me like there's no reason not to do that. And the problem is that no one does because everyone's kind of, I don't know if they're scared to do it. This doesn't maybe even occur to them, right? That there's no reason a law review article has to take a traditional format other than the fact that, you know, they're obviously kind of institutional and professional incentives to do so, as it were. I mean, like, you know, it's not a profession that encourages you to rock the boat necessarily, right. uh, or at least for most people it isn't. For me, it, I kind of feel like, sure, it does, right? It's like, what better way to get, I, mean, I like to joke, right? I mean, it's like you go into law teaching and they're like, you know, they're like, well, you're like, well, what, are, what are your expectations? Like, you know, what should I be doing as I move forward with my career? And they're like, well, you know, you need to produce an innovative legal scholarship and create a national profile for yourself. All right, I, I can do that. No problem. <laughs> On it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's sort of a curious path dependency in law, right? And, and so you've, you talked a little bit about the reception of your articles in, uh, you know, amongst kind of fellow scholars. I'm curious about, I guess, two other audiences, because I, I feel like this, this playfulness that you bring to the endeavor, this sort of sense of maybe transgressions too, too strong a term, but this sort of this sense that the boundaries are ephemeral and, and, and can themselves be played with. To certain audiences, I feel like that could potentially read as like skeptical at best and sort of actively hostile at worst, like to the very concept of law. And so I'm curious <laughs> about I'm curious about how your students react to what it is that you do. And then also to pick up on, on a sort of previous chapter in your life, you you practice law. 
And like, not only did you practice law, like you practice law at Sullivan and Cromwell, which it, so you and I both worked there. We, we didn't overlap in time, but we both worked there. So I, I speak with a little bit of authority on this. Sullivan and Cromwell is not the kind of place that I would traditionally associate with like the filmmaker who decides to become a lawyer and, you know, decides that actually I can just fuck around with all of this stuff. So, so how did, how do those two or how have those two different audiences reacted to what it is that you do? Yeah, that's, that's funny. Yeah, you're, you're right. So the Sullivan and Cromwell thing was such a, um, such a odd coincidence that ultimately worked out really nicely for me. So as it happens, a really good friend of mine from high school, another, a different good friend of mine from high school, Alex Reed, who also went to NYU law school several years before me and is now a partner at Cahill Gordon in Washington, DC. He does like uh, nonprofit taxation law. Um, very well-known lawyer in that field. He was a paralegal at Sullivan and Cromwell before going to law school. And I went and met him there just to hang out and have lunch or something. And I, I was like, it was like the only law firm I'd ever really heard of or I knew about just because he had happened to work there. And then when I started, like transferred from Georgetown to NYU and they were doing all of this um, on-campus interviewing stuff. And it's like, well, which law firm are you going to work for? And I interview with a bunch of them. You know, it was very formalistic, right? They sort of just looked at your LSATs and your, your grades and, and whatnot. And like, okay, you satisfy the criteria. And, you know, for me, they were kind of fungible on some level. Uh, but ironically, um, the, the interviewer from Sullivan and Cromwell, I remember it was Dan, Dan LaGuardia, I think was his name. Um, and his dad was a poet and we got to talking in the interview, it was just me and him. He was like, he said, it was a hilarious experience. He's like, he basically looked at the sheet and was like, yeah, whatever, you qualify. So let's just have a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you, it's cool. <laughs> and so we spent the whole, we spent the whole like interview talking about like beat poetry and Ferlinghetti and stuff. <laughs> And they're like, call back. I was like, oh, all right, whatever. <laughs> so I went back, I did the interview, et cetera, et cetera. I worked there for a couple of years. It was fine, you know, it's like I learned stuff. It wasn't obviously wasn't like a great fit. I mean, it was like, I was gonna say, like I had a um I had an office mate at one point, real super nice guy, but he was like so nervous all the time. He was like like shaking, like just like, oh my God, I, I you could feel the nervous energy just radiating from this guy. One day he was like, well, Brian. How do you how do you do it? How are you so calm all the time? Like you're never upset, you're never nervous. Why are you so calm? I'm like, dude, I'm gonna quit. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you got a short shelf life here. What do you care? <laughs> like it's ain't rocket science, man. Right. Um, so anyway, you know, I I quit there after a couple of years. It's sort of like I got what I what I needed from it. And um did like a, a some VAP at a, like a podium filler VAP basically at, a, at Hofstra. But, you know, and when I went on the market, <laughs> I found it hilarious. I learned after the fact that, you know, I, I'm sure this comes as no great surprise, right? That there were people on the hiring committees or in the faculty who were like, that guy seems a little weird. Are we sure he's like serious about like law and law professoring and all this kind of stuff? And they're like, well, he worked at Sullivan and Cromwell, so he must be really serious. So nothing to worry about. <laughs> you have the Sullivan and Cromwell stamp of approval. So really, like the Sullivan and Cromwell, like inoculated me right. from all kinds <laughs> of problems that might have otherwise arisen, um, like tell telltale signs from my my background, as it were. So God bless Sullivan and Cromwell for you know doing doing their part to help me get this uh, legal <laughs> to produce this. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I like yeah. it. <laughs> and so do your students, I, well, actually, I guess, let me reframe the question slightly. The approach that you take in your scholarship, is that also reflected in your pedagogy? Like, do you teach that way as well? Or do you teach in a way which you would think of as sort of markedly different from how others are teaching? You know, that's an interesting question. I think the hard thing for me about it is like the way we've structured legal academia from a pedagogical standpoint, and especially like feedback around it, it's so hard to know what other people are doing. And without knowing what other people are doing, it's impossible to know like how closely your own style fits in with theirs. Okay. Um, I think 
you know, when I'm teaching doctrinal classes, I try to be as straightforward as I can. I mean, I used to teach civil procedure and, you know, I taught it out of the really traditional, like Hirschkopf book, you know, um, uh, Hirschkopf, who was, I forget, you know, one one of the ones everyone uses, big fat, you know, heavy on the con law one, um, because that's what the other professor at the school was also using. I didn't want to have the students have to buy more than one book. You know, I I tried to teach it pretty straightforward, but, you know, and I would say, unavoidably with the kind of legal realist lens to it, right? I mean, I'm not gonna pretend that this stuff is just like, you know, anything, anything other than courts searching for doctrines and trying to figure out how to explain or justify what it is that, that they're doing. And, you know, but I think that that's, I don't know that that's all that unusual, or I think that's pretty standard for most classes. And in fact, if anything, I think I'm probably less cynical about that than some, I mean, I think, you know, part of what actually makes judging interesting is that most judges really believe in what they're doing and that sort of that belief is intrinsic or necessary in order for them to do their jobs properly. I mean, I almost see a kind of corrosiveness to like expecting judges to be more realist. It's, there's a tension there for me, which I think is really interesting, you know, but sure, does that bleed into copyright or like my IP classes? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, how do I teach IP? Well, I try to like force the students to, to ask that question, like, why are we doing this? What is this for? What are the justifications? Like, how do we understand this from a policy perspective, which a lot of them dislike, you know, there's a certain, there's a non-trivial kind of cadre of law students for whom, you know, asking questions about why is really uncomfortable for them. They don't like it when you make them do it in class. They want to know what the rule is, right? They want to be able to apply the rule and tell you what the right answer is, and that's it. And if you start questioning what it is that's going on, or ask, even worse, asking them to think critically about what we're doing and why we're doing it, they don't appreciate that, right? They really don't like it, and they don't want to do it. I would say that's even more so in a class like professional responsibility. I mean, like hilariously, I actually had students uh, in the evals for my PR class say things like, all he ever does is talk about how lawyers do bad things. I'm like, what do you think we're going to talk about in a PR class for Christ's sake? (laughs) For one thing, right? And it's like the idea that you, you, you could go to law school and graduate from law school and not be at least a little bit cynical about the motivations behind the legal profession is kind of mind boggling to me, right. right? I mean, I don't even know where to go with that, but like, I, I still enjoy it. You know, I guess I'm, I'm tenured and fully promoted, so I don't have to care if they whine about me in the, in the email. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually on that yeah. point, so did tenure, I, I mean, were you different before you got tenure? <laughs> were, you, were you sort of less I mean, adventurous? I mean, y- Yes, but not because of, I didn't, that it wasn't tenure that okay. changed my mind, really. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, if, if anything, I went on the law market with a totally weird paper. Like, I mean, my, my job talk paper was, you know, why crowdfunding provides evidence that charity law policy is uh, imperfectly efficient at maximizing um, the uh, charitable activity of private donors, <laughs> right? Nice. And people were like, right. what? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess that's a large article. I'm not sure what the takeaway is, but fine. Right. Um, and then like my immediate pre-tenure publication was uh, a, an article titled Plagiarism is Not a Crime. <laughs> so, I mean, I wasn't like, I don't know, I kind of figured like, look, I mean, the idea is to produce something provocative that people are going to notice, you know, that's what I'm supposedly getting tenured for. I better start ginning up some interesting ideas that people might like actually talk about. You know, I think for me, it was more just like, it took a while to kind of figure out what worked and what didn't work. It took a while to sort of find a voice you know, it took a while to just practice writing, you know, I mean, it's work, it's the, you know, you have to do it in order to get better at it. And, you know, figuring out what you want to do and why you want to do it takes a while. And also, you know, I, mean, I think the reality is that if you want to do something interesting, it takes that much longer, because all the advice that you get is how to do legal scholarship in the most traditional and conventional way. Possible. 
elsewhere. Right. Right. So, I mean, if you read the sort of like, I mean, like I read like, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I went out there and looked for, I want to, I'm going to be good at this. I want to like read the how-to manuals. And I read Eugene Volokh's academic legal writing. You know, I went out and read uh, Pam Samuelson's article about like writing like Orwell and et cetera, et cetera. And like, it wasn't until I kind of synthesized a bunch of that stuff. that I was like, okay, you know, like, here's how you found a voice. Here's how you, you know, think about what you want to do. Like, what does it mean to have a scholarly agenda? You know, this is a, a big one for me, right? I mean, for most people, it's like, you know, identify a doctrine and then figure out, you know, how you're going to write, you know, six papers in a row that incrementally, like, make slightly different arguments about exactly the same thing. I was like, I don't know, man, that doesn't sound like any agenda. Scholarly <laughs> 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 agenda is like, uh, you know, like, like, put a put a bomb in the idea of traditional legal scholarship, right? right? I mean, I don't know, right? I mean, you can do anything you want, why not? And I think it was like getting to that point and realizing that when I did something strange or I sort of asked people to kind of think about legal scholarship in a way they hadn't thought about it before, or think about what it could do in a way they hadn't thought about it before, they really liked it, you know? And it was like, they were like, oh, this is unusual. Oh, this is distinctive. Oh, I'm not like, it's funny, a friend of mine wrote to the other day and she was like, she said that she'd heard people using the phrase Brian Fry style or why don't you Brian Fry it? I was like, oh my God, this is like the greatest thing ever. <laughs> I mean, now you know you've made it, right? Like you are influencing. Yeah, right? People. National profile, man. <laughs> it's sort of like, I am, I am literally the hold my beer of, of legal scholarship. <laughs> right. Amazing. So Okay, so you've you've in your scholarship, you've and in your public statements, you, you've expressed skepticism about the the bar exam, the sort of utility of the bar exam. Uh, if I have this right, your course on professional responsibility is actually called uh, managing the legal cartel. But you you just alluded to it, like probably your most provocative stance is about plagiarism. And so, can you walk me through how you got to where you currently are on plagiarism and what kind of reactions that has elicited from your colleagues? Because I feel like that is one of the few real sacred cows in the academy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. So honestly, I, I think it fundamentally came out of my engagement with intellectual property scholarship, right? Because, you know, pre-law school and especially pre-legal academia, I'd never thought about ownership of uh, creative works in a kind of theoretical programmatic way at all. And you know, as, as, an, as an artist, right, I pretty much accepted the sort of intuitions that a lot of people had that you, know, you ought to be able to control what you create and it's you know, wrong to use what other people do without their permission. With of course, all of these is like nagging doubt that like, wait a minute, artists do that all the time. Like, this seems so. Uh, there's, there's a certain kind of you know, do what I say, not what I do kind right. of energy to sure. it. Yeah, like the rhetoric doesn't yeah. match the practice in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, yeah. But so I, you know, I think the more I started doing intellectual property scholarship and engaging with intellectual property theory, uh, the more I started to realize that oh wait, like my skepticism here runs really deep. And I, you know, honestly, I, I would say. I would, I would peg the really transitional moment to reading that like really provocative Mark Lemley essay on uh, faith-based intellectual property, right. right? And so I wrote a kind of response, which in a lot of ways was more of an homage to the piece, which I mean, I, I think is fantastic. And I agree with almost entirely with, you know, some really minor uh, revisions or addendums or whatever, but broadly speaking, I mean, I think Mark was was spot on with, with that article. You know, I wrote a kind of agnostic response. I titled it a Machiavellian intellectual property, right. essentially saying that like, look, he's right, but this is also from a kind of a thousand foot perspective, a situation where you just have to choose, right? You have to choose what you value and move forward with whatever you've chosen. And I think it was sort of like taking that kind of perspective, which I basically just plagiarized from Isaiah Berlin's article on Machiavelli, although I attributed it. Right. You know, 
Isaiah <laughs> Berlin, but I mean, I lifted it from Isaiah Berlin. Got me thinking about, oh, wait a minute, right? We're super radical skeptics about copyright and intellectual property as intellectual property scholars. And yet we all still have these same intuitions about, you know, the articles we've written, about the ideas that we've, you know, expressed and the obligation of others to attribute those ideas to us. And no one seems to ever ask why we assume those things or why they're justified. And the more I thought about it and the more I researched in the area, the more I realized like the body of plagiarism scholarship out there, I mean, like literally could not be more one-sided, right? There was nobody until I found Steve Fuller, who's like a many years later, actually, an academic in, in England who's working in similar ways, but from a different perspective. But like, <laughs> it was fun to sort of, actually meet someone else who was like, yeah, plagiarism is fine and not a problem. Anyway, the more I realized like, wait a minute, there's a kind of hypocrisy here that we have, right? Where essentially what we're saying is we wanna get rid of all of these ownership structures that we think are inefficient in other circumstances, but we're not gonna question them when it comes to what we do, right? And so a big part of it for me was sort of like, how do we use these same kinds of critical uh, intellectual property tools to think about ownership in the context of the scholarly gift economy, right? Because we're still engaging in economic activity. We're just engaging in non-monetary economic activity, right? But people still, you know, they're incentivized by, you know, what it is they see as the potential benefits of being able to control uh, the use of the various goods that are valued by others and that they want to internalize the value from. And one of those is like, for example, ideas, right? And, you know, and I, and I guess part of it for me too is like the more I looked at what people had to say about plagiarism, the more kind of self-serving and bullshit it sounded, right? I mean, everyone was just, oh, it's really about the reader and ensuring that the readers have the, like, readers don't give a fuck about that stuff. Right? I mean, most readers are just looking for ideas, right? And if you're gonna put citations in there for their readers, what the readers want is just references to things that'll be helpful to understand stuff better, right? What readers don't care about and really don't need to care about, maybe even shouldn't care about, is like who's claiming ownership of those ideas and forcing other people to attribute it to them, right? So for me, these arguments just are, are so specious because they're totally self-interested, but couched with this kind of baloney concern for you know, what it is that readers are taking away from the material, right? So that really got me thinking like, you know, who's really responsible for this and how does it work and how can I kind of intervene in an interesting way, right? So that first article, you know, plagiarism is not a crime, obviously a riff on the old skateboarding is not a crime. Yeah. Meme, right? <laughs> Essentially, said like let's like let's demystify this, right? Because this is such a heavily kind of moralized conversation that it's impossible for people to talk about it critically and realistically about you know what they think is actually justified and why, right? Let's not pretend that there's anything kind of special and kind of normatively profound about this. This is just another market that we're engaging in and we need to justify in kind of traditional market terms why it is that these academic plagiarism norms are things that I should, we should have any respect for, right? And then in the follow-up, I was like, kind of figure, I'll take it a step further and say, okay, fine. You know, those norms are out there. Who's in charge? Like who enforces them, right? Like if I don't want to play by those rules, am I allowed to break those rules? How would I break those rules? What happens if I break those rules? And I wrote this, you know, like, again, like kind of poking fun at Abby Hoffman, right? He wrote his, you know, steal this book with a big copyright symbol. It's hilarious to me, right? It's like an anti-capitalist who wants to claim literary property. It's like property is property, buddy. You know, you're not as anti-capitalist as you think you are, right? So, uh, so I did like plagiarize this paper instead saying like, well, you know, like if, if we take it for granted that ultimately, you know, being able to claim ownership of ideas, being able to claim ownership of literary productions in a kind of non-commercial work oriented way is just another kind of quasi property right. Then, you know, why shouldn't I be able to disclaim it, 
right? Obviously I can't, but why can't I? And what happens when I try? And you know, what justifies people not allowing me to um, not want or to kind of disclaim ownership of the ideas that plagiarism norms say have to be attributed to me. And I kind of followed that up with a bunch of other kind of related papers riffing on the same theme, right? The idea being like, oh, well, how about I give away the authorship in all of my articles, right? Or how about I, um, you know, propose the creation of a reattribution, right? As opposed to <laughs> an attribution, right? And kind of like, you know, show how that might be um, potentially, you know, an efficient fix to potential problems associated with how this market actually works. But really, I, I think the underlying project is just to kind of undermine the premise by asking questions that are really uncomfortable, right? right? Because my observation about the literature in this area, to the extent that there was one, I mean, frankly, it was really weak, was that it just kind of took it all for granted, right? I mean, you know, honestly, God bless him, Dick Posner, who wrote a lot of really great stuff, got a lot of notoriety for his like little book of plagiarism, which frankly sucks, it's so dumb. You know, I mean, like he doesn't even say anything new. He just basically like, <laughs> he, he basically copies and recapitulates whatever's on the MLA webpage, you know, with a little bit of a law and economics veneer that's totally unconvincing, right? And people are like, oh yeah, Dick Posner's, you know, like explanation of, that was a baloney, right? It's a terrible book. It doesn't even make any sense. And a lot of what he says is clearly not true, right? I mean, he's like talks about how attribution is critical to fair use. I'm like, bullshit. Right? right? I mean, that's, you're describing plagiarism norms, but there's nothing in copyright law that intrinsically says that. And that's just a gloss on what we mean by fair use, right? I mean, I guess so, like, this is like an area where I think my, like, IP students get especially bent out of shape, but it's, I think it's obviously <laughs> right, right? So they'll be like, oh, you know, we need to learn all the doctrine. Like, we have a fair use doctrine with the factors. I'm like, dude, like, give me a break, right? Fair use is just, like, fair use factors are just... Uh, are just the kind of what judges use to justify the decision they've already made about how they're going to decide a case. If you're arguing the fair use factors, you're already losing, right? Right, Because you've missed the entire point of what's going on when judges ask a fair use question. It's just policymaking and that's it. And that's okay, right? But you're not going to argue it effectively if you try to do it on doctrinal terms, right? The point is, that from an advocacy perspective, you need to be explaining why it is that it doesn't make sense to allow copyright owners to assert copyright protection in a certain circumstance. Or, or the other way around, right? If you're representing right. a copyright owner, it seems to me the argument would have really ought to be like, look, this is like, specifically, I would say like, look, this is just unfair competition and nothing else. Right. This isn't expression. This is just unfair competition. Copyright is about me getting to internalize the the economic value associated with the work that I've produced. And this other person is just trying to kind of steal some of my profits. Right. This is zero sum game to that extent. And I'm, I'm entitled to the profits from whatever I produce. The point is, you know, fair uses for when it's not just a zero sum game like that. It's when somebody's producing something that's not really meaningfully competing uh, or not competing in the same market as what was, was previously produced. But And I think framing it in those terms, it's framing it in terms of expression, framing it in terms of what are we trying to accomplish, and you know, giving the judge the tools to put that in the kind of doctrinal language, but ultimately like helping the judges get to the place where they can be a little bit more realistic about what the point of doing this in the first place is, is, you know, that's how you actually win. I think for a lot of students, it's like, oh, wait, I don't like this. You know, <laughs> they're like, no, 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 no. I want the rules, right? And this is a hilarious thing I always find about about a lot of law students, right? It's like the joke about law students is everyone says, oh, you know, people go to law school because they hate math. But ironically, law students want the law to be math, right? They want you to give them the rules. And it's like, okay, I got the rule. I plug in the facts and it just, it spits out the right answer. Awesome, I'm there. And it's like, it's kind of hilarious to me, right? Like they literally want to be doing mathematics every day and it drives them nuts when you're like, no, 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 that's, that's not what you, you, 
You got to explain how it works. You got to explain why it matters. You, you got to engage with the policy if you want to be rhetorically convincing at all. And failure to do that is really failure to appreciate what lawyering is actually all about. Amazing. So uh, look, I, I, nobody can question your commitment to undermining plagiarism norms. So I'm just going to read. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm just going to read the statement that you've got on your SSRN page. So all of, quote, all of my articles are licensed CCO, Creative Commons Zero, slash public domain. Please feel free to use them in any way that you like. I specifically authorize you to plagiarize my articles, end quote. Has anybody taken you up on that? Tongue in cheek, plenty of people. Okay. Right? But honestly, <laughs> and, and God bless them. I love every time they do it, but it's also like not very creative. It's like, they'll be like, they'll take it and put their name in it or whatever. I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, no, you're, you're really like, okay, ha ha ha. But like, you're missing the point. Right. I mean, I like it. I right. still think it's funny. And like Oscar Wilde said, right. I mean, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. So if you want to talk about my stuff, fantastic. I'm delighted for you to put it out there and talk about these ideas. Interestingly, there have been a few circumstances in which people have tried to interestingly take it a step further. Probably the best, I think, was Agnes Callard, who wrote an essay in The Point, which she then followed up with an essay, I think, in Chronicle of Higher Education, where she took my Plagiarize This Paper article and basically put the ideas she liked in her own words and made her own argument out of them. Um, and I think we did a great job and actually said a lot of new and different things that I didn't say and maybe wouldn't have said myself. However, she, or at least her editor, felt compelled to include a footnote at the end saying that this was copied from my article, which was right. not required, but right. they didn't feel comfortable not doing that. You're foiled by the editor, or she was foiled. Yeah, by the editor. I mean, yeah. honestly, that the thing is, very few people have the courage of their conditions when it comes to this. Well, to the extent I convert anyone, um, you know, I would say maybe my friend Mike Overby um, has. He's probably the only one who's actually literally plagiarized things. And but we have like we have a long conversation. Like he gets it. Right. So I, I would say like of all the people, probably only him. And he's like, he's a, he's a coder and a programmer. He's not a, he's not a law professor. He's not even a law student. You know, he's just really smart and really interested right. in, in the law and specifically in, in intellectual property law and literary ownership. Interesting. And so he's not so, encumbered by all of the baggage that sort right. of law students. He has the liberty to right. sort of <laughs> act, act, act as he will. But Excellent. so I do, I do have a, like a, a bigger project, which I'm embarking on now, okay. um, which my, hopefully it'll be my first one first. I don't know. It'll be a book project, maybe the first, maybe not. Um, but it's going to be an economic history of plagiarism norms, uh, starting with ancient Greece and going all the way to the present day. And the goal will be to show how uh, plagiarism norms were always simply a way for people engaged in literary production to capture uh, the relevant economic benefits for themselves. Right. A very cynical perspective on- right. <laughs> <laughs> Cynical you? So, you know what, let me, let, let's wrap up by, by sort of looping back to one of the themes that we opened this conversation with, and that was artistic practice. One of the things that I am kind of perpetually interested in is the role that place or geography plays in artistic practice. And I, and I raise that for, for two reasons. So one is, uh, you know, I've followed your work for a number of years now. I've noticed uh, as prolific as you have been for a long time, you seem to have become more prolific over the last, let's say, call it a year or so. And you've moved to New Orleans. Uh, and New Orleans, you know, there's a lot of people who record albums and, you know, they travel to New Orleans to record there. And um, there's a lot of people who find a lot of inspiration, uh, seemingly kind of, you know, in the, in the physical location of New Orleans. What role has New Orleans played and moving to New Orleans played, you know, in your scholarship, in your public persona and in your sort of creativity? Uh, is it, is there some connection there? I'm not sure about the geography so much, but definitely like personal circumstances, you know, I mean, so I, th I think a big one for me was I was going through a 
transition several years ago in sort of how I was thinking about the kind of work I was producing, but it was a slow, like I was gradually coming up with new stuff. I was starting to feel freer. I was starting to do stranger and stranger projects, kind of that period culminating in the, you know, the conceptual art SEC no action letter right. piece <laughs> that I, that I created. But then, um, then I met, I met Maybell and the pandemic hit at the same time. And so all of a sudden it was like, I think it was more about a spatial life experience thing where it was like the two of us together all the time with no one else around. And so all I had to do was, you know, think about ideas, right? I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't have anything to do. I was in the house just with nothing to do, but think about ideas and produce legal scholarship. And like, I, I just wanted to come up with stuff that Mabel would think was clever, you know? Uh <laughs> <laughs> so this whole thing is just about impressing a girl. I get that's it. Right. That's, that's totally right. fine. <laughs> More than anything else, probably. She was very inspirational, you know? Um, and it's been fun. Like, cause I, I, we bounce ideas, ideas off each other all the time, you know? And it's just like being in that, milieu was really productive for me and it just like I think you're right I mean it is kind of bananas like how much I've been spitting out over the last couple of years but you know I, I do think that that's the better part of of the reason I just felt really free to think differently and think bigger and think like about where I could go next awesome well, here's to much more of it coming from you. I look forward to it. Thanks so much for taking the time today to chat. This has been great. Thanks, Bob. It was really wonderful to talk to you, as always. And I hope we can hang out in person sometimes. I look forward to it, man. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com.